Welcome to this episode of the Security Clearance Careers Podcast, ClearCast, your source for security clearance, intelligence community, espionage, national security, and defense contracting updates in our exclusive interviews with intelligence community and government leaders. Kaiser with clearancejobs.com and welcome to this episode of Security Clearance and Security on Federal News Radio. Today I am really excited, I even have the book here, to be talking with Daniel Stewart Olmes who is the President and Chief Operating Officer of Accelerate and also first-time published author. So we're going to have his book. So we're here to talk about the book. I love this because I am a total bibliophile and book geek, but also clearly host a federal news radio show. So very interested in the government contracting world. So I think it's awesome when anytime anybody in the GovCon space writes a book or has a passion project, I think sometimes work-life balance is not known as our strong suit in the GovCon community. So it's good. We're, we're kind of trying to tout more wellness and, you know, holistic approach to life. And it's great to have a conversation with somebody. A lot of that is in the book, but then also kind of it's actually an example of it in the fact that you are currently the president of a really innovative company doing a lot of cool work around the cleared space. You are also a first time published author. So thank you, Danny, so much for being on the show and for chatting with me today. Uh, thank you, Lindy. I appreciate the opportunity. I appreciate a platform like this to, to talk about business, to talk about our experiences in, in GovCon and, and our personal experiences. I think those are very important. You hit on it. Balance is very important in life. Some would argue that it's not, that success is driven by people who kind of overdo it in, in, in one way or another. I, I believe that balance is an extremely important aspect of life. Uh, so you, you hit on it. Awesome. So we talked about this before when you were getting ready to publish the book. So I've been following this process with you. You mentioned how you just had this kind of passion point. You wanted to write a book. What prompted that desire or interest to even write? Sure. You know, if I go back to my high school days, and a lot of this is in the book, my strengths were things that were very logical. Math, writing was very logical. One would argue that music is very logical in a way. I didn't have that talent necessarily. But math and writing were always interests of mine. They came very easily. And what didn't come very easily were things that actually I decided to study in college, which was biology, just simply sitting down and, and, and memorizing a lot of things, uh, just not how my brain worked and not what I was passionate about. So, you know, that led to a struggle in my college years of, of trying to understand what I was good at, understand my passions. But my real passions were looking out at the night sky in, in absolute wonder. I, I had this you know, fascination for physics. I wanted to be a physicist. That's what I wanted to do with my life. But, you know, I got in this mindset that, you know, I, if I wanted to be successful or if I wanted to seem smart or, you know, impress other people, I had to do certain things. A lot of those mindsets and decisions took me off those, those paths. I didn't really kickstart my real passions until later in life. I became a lifelong reader like you. I think that's why we connected. And that was something that was difficult for me uh, before a certain age. I probably had some form of ADHD, uh, very difficult to focus on word after word for hours at a time, but explored those passions where I didn't you know, necessarily put them to use in a profession. I explored them as a hobby in reading and writing also became something that was very important to me. That all started with an experience I had in my parking garage at work a number of years ago. And I've spoken about this experience in every podcast that I've done or in every appearance that I've made because it was so important. It was a very average, ordinary event. 
And, you know, it was watching this very elderly woman walk by the front of my car as I pulled into my parking space in this parking garage. In her hand was a gym bag. The parking garage that I parked in was below a, a, a gym. And when I say that that experience triggered an absolute rush of energy, I would not do that justice. I mean, the energy was so powerful that I could almost hear it ringing through my body. And what dawned on me in that moment that if I could have that type of experience with a total stranger on an average day, completely unexpectedly, uh, that I could probably have that experience with many other things. And, and potentially I was missing a whole lot of the world around me. And what that old woman really enlightened for me was the importance of, of strength and endurance and not necessarily physical strength, but spiritual endurance, emotional endurance. So in that moment, I committed to writing a lot of these little experiences down and to keep my eyes open to the things that were around me every day. Not the things that were you know, hit on the top of my head with a hammer or some booming voice from the sky, but the subtleties of life, the intricacies that we miss in an age that we get absolutely bombarded with information. And a lot of it negative, right? A lot of it's not very well-intentioned and good for us necessarily. That's a long answer in saying how I developed a passion for writing and particularly what I wanted to write about. The last thing I'll say is that, you know, I, I write it from an, the perspective of an ordinary life, which I think I lead. You know, I think that extraordinary has a very warped definition these days. To be extraordinary, you have to break records. You have to make a million dollars. You got to be president of a company. Nobody in their right mind would say that somebody worked for 30 years on the factory line who was a good person and absolutely loved life wasn't successful. I wrote this book because I believe that definition is getting further and further from one being useful to people and one that inspires people. I love that. And I do think that is like what you see throughout the book. And it's kind of this changing this focus from we do tend to look inward and look down and you're kind of pivoting the focus out and saying, hey, there's a lot of, as you would say, extraordinary experiences, you know, hidden within the ordinary. People just take a minute to stop and look at them. So again, I read the book because I had met you before. And so uh, the book resonated with me, but it was not necessarily what I expected because it talks a lot about your personal life, but your career is certainly some small part of it. So again, I am in the GovCon space, so I kind of want to address that a little bit. How did you maybe decide what stories to unpack or talk about? When was your career a part of that? And then when maybe was it not? And was that even like a thought process for which stories to include and which not to? I think a lot of the stories, about midway through the book, I talk about my career, how it became what it became, maybe some of the areas where I got lucky, you know, why I got into certain professions versus others. It goes back to what I mentioned about my experience in college, in education. I picked things that I wasn't good at. I wasn't passionate about it. Actually, I picked things that covered up insecurities of mine. You know, if I major in biology, I'll seem smart. If I tell people that you know, I'm committed to big ideas and big problems like AIDS and cancer. Somehow that will put me on a different level of other people. Those were all lies that I told myself and other people. I went to an out-to-work day at the National Institutes of Health, and my next-door neighbor was a head researcher at the National Cancer Institute. It, it was like a foreign language. It was like a, you know, something, it was a totally unique experience. It was, it was fascinating, but it, was, it wasn't what I wanted to do. And I came out of that experience, you know, I, I said, hey, I did the out-to-work day at NIH. And everybody's like, wow. And I was like, well, I'm going to go tackle big problems like AIDS and cancer, like I said. I didn't want to do that. I wanted to study the stars. About halfway through college, I got an internship with Coopers and Library, which was the predecessor company of PricewaterhouseCoopers. I only got that because my uncle was the chief operating officer. 
I, it's not what I wanted to do. I, I didn't have a 3.8 grade point average to get that internship. I was there because I knew somebody. In that chapter that talks about that, my career and my start as an intern, the gentleman that I sat next to was friends with the CEO. And we both looked at each other at one point. And it's a funny exchange in the story that like, how did you get here? Well, how did you get here? And lo and behold, 20 years later, we lead Accelerate Solutions. He's the CEO and I'm the chief operating officer. And it sort of testifies to the fact that relationships probably matter than most things, that your career is going to take you know, 10 different turns that you couldn't anticipate or didn't want necessarily. But at the core of all of that is human relationships. You know, I got into GovCon. I got lucky. I didn't deserve to be there. I got an internship I didn't deserve. I didn't screw it up. I was offered a pretty good job when I graduated. That again, sounded prestigious. Oh, you got an offer from PricewaterhouseCoopers. You must have done something right. You must be incredibly intelligent. No, that I sat and stared at spreadsheets for the next 20 years. I referred to it in that chapter that I talked about my career as a white collar death sentence because I slowly abandoned everything I ever wanted to do. And I knew it. I had genuine anxiety on my first day of work because this is not what I want to do. Now, it led to a great career. I'm not going to say that it didn't, but it wasn't what I was passionate about. And people ask me all the time, would you go back and change what you did? And I don't, I don't know if I can answer that right now. You know, I, like I said, I developed in a hobby what I was not able to do in a profession. What's interesting about that is that had I become a physicist like I wanted to or a mathematician, I might not have reinforced an already strong faith that I had. It might have actually derailed my spiritual life. You know, I talk a lot about my spiritual life in the book. So would I go back and change things? No, probably not. And I got to a place where I really enjoyed what I did and I was passionate about the work that I did. It didn't start off that way. Well, I think you, you hit on a, a right blend of things. I think we talk a lot about what we're passionate about, but sometimes we don't talk enough about what we're good at. You can try, you can be passionate about something and not do it well, and that's not going to work out. You kind of have to have some blend of both. I, I'd be curious what your perspective was. I tend to lean on the side of like, pursue what you're good at. And I think as you start to get, you know, I'm somebody with low self-esteem, so I need to ride that train of some positive reinforcement. You get that positive reinforcement and then it builds up your passion for that thing. Sometimes people might have a passion for something. They're not good at it. And it just gonna, it's just going to sink you to the ground. I don't know. Do you have thoughts on that? Like, how do you kind of blend that pursuit of what you're good at, but then what you're passionate about? You know, in the book, I, I talk a lot about my personal struggles, substance abuse being one. I struggled with alcohol for many years following my years in, in college. And I go back and ask myself, why did I drink? Why did I overdo it? The main reason was I didn't feel good at anything. I didn't pick things that aligned with my strengths. I didn't have the opportunities and the experiences that I wanted as a result of that. And there was a lot of dissatisfaction in life because of that. A lot of confusion. Not to say that I mean, this is the experience for most people. Like, do we ever actually perform in a job what we studied in college or what we actually were passionate about as young people? Probably not. And maybe the world's not set up to really do that. You know, if, if that was the case, and every person that grew up in my era would be Indiana Jones or Luke Skywalker. And maybe that's not realistic and you have to dial that back a little bit. But again, I didn't choose things that I was good at at all. And I struggled. I mean, I got to the business world. I had no idea that you could even enter a formula in Excel, much less calculate a profit and loss statement. And I found myself in this environment where everything was a foreign language. And I did my best. The only thing that I did was cover up how bad I was and how naive and inexperienced I was. 
and just getting bad feedback all the time. Like you said, I mean, you see those same parallels in like social media, like people being obsessed with getting likes and then getting depressed when they don't. So I think that paradigm exists in a lot of different things. You know, the other, the other thing that I was passionate about, I was passionate about mountains. I wanted to be a mountaineer. I write a lot about, in that story about my career, I write about an adventurer named Jamie Clark who wrote the foreword to my book, who was actually the concluding motivational speaker of our intern, our final intern event uh, that summer between my junior and senior year of college. You know, he spoke a lot about his attempts at Everest. And, you know, I'm sitting there in that auditorium, like my feet bouncing off the floor, my head tingling. I mean, I would have followed him out that front door and done whatever he asked me to do. But right there in that seat, in that auditorium with 500 other interns from around the country from all the big five, I knew it was gone. That dream was over. That led to years of dissatisfaction. It took me a long time to try to figure out how to write. Well, that, that actually tees into one of my questions here, which was talking about how chance encounters had led to big revelations. I would say that seems to be a current of the book. Because a lot of it is, again, these ordinary moments that led to extraordinary revelations. Like, And again, there's a huge spiritual undercurrent. Someone is speaking to you through those moments, you know, and you're, you're perceiving that and then acting upon it. So can you kind of maybe talk about that? At what point did you realize some of these, you mentioned that pivotal one, you know, in the parking garage, was that really kind of open your aperture to saying throughout? And then you started seeing all of these other moments spiraling together. And then that, did that give you the capacity to look backward as well, though, and see how things like that meeting with Jamie Clark have led to insights and opportunities that you maybe wouldn't have experienced or realized on your own. You know, I've read hundreds of books in my life. I've studied Hinduism, Buddhism. I was raised as a Christian. I studied even New Age philosophies. And the number one thing that, or the number one theme that weaves itself through those traditions, regardless of what you, you know, what you believe, is that we tend to live in a place that responds to our decisions, our energy, our kindness, the love that we put into the world. I can't describe what that is. When I say the universe responds, I think that if you do enough of the right things, you make enough of the right choices, that if you're kind to people and you develop the right types of relationships, if you have a good attitude, I mean, everything is about attitude, right? The world that you experience is just information at the end of the day. And one of my favorite quotes is by Viktor Frankl, who wrote Man's Search for Meaning. He's the Austrian psychologist and, and Holocaust survivor. He says, in between the stimulus and the response, there is a space. And in that space is how you choose to reflect on what just happened to you. And it's in that space that determines your growth in life. Uh, so everything that you experience, there's a choice in how you reflect on that. That, that freedom is fundamentally never taken away. Uh, I say that understanding things like mental illness and other situations, but for the vast majority of us, that decision on how you reflect on information is not taken away. You know, again, the experience of life, in my opinion, in my humble opinion, it is a choice. That choice being far more difficult for some people than others. I fully give respect to that. But again, it goes back to we live in a responsive place. So all of the decisions you make, all of the people you meet, whether they're strangers or loved ones, your experience of that is a, is a choice. And you asked about looking backward, you know, in Christian traditions and in many other traditions, the, the idea of forgiveness is, is paramount. And usually people mistake that as a condoning of somebody else's behavior. And that, that actually is a misnomer and very, very misunderstood. Forgiveness is about not allowing something to negatively affect you anymore, including the past. 
that forgiveness is about forgiving the past. If you can view the past differently, then you can experience the past differently. The past is just information. Again, I love that question because how you interact with the world at the end of the day is a choice. And if you have that mindset that I'm going to make a good choice with the information that has come to me, I think your view of the world changes overnight. And it's an awesome responsibility. You know, we are are responsible for our own actions and attitudes and responses, I think. Sometimes people forget that. And so I think the attitude and I mean, I'm a positivity warrior. I was toxically positive before it was a bad thing to be. That's tends to be where I come from. But I do think that ties into a lot of things. And I would love to have you hit on a little bit, you know, riding, living, working in the D.C. metro, which can seem like a different place, right? We don't think of D.C. as like the home to the, all the creatives. I can say that as someone who lived in D.C., where I was like, New York, that's where they care about fashion creatives. We're just about government, again, GovCon space. So has... Living in D.C., growing up, you know, kind of in the D.C. DMV metro area, how has that influenced your life, your writing, your storytelling? The D.C. area has changed quite a bit. When I was a kid, it was a very static group of people. Most everybody worked for the federal government, was a civil servant in in some way or another, or they worked for state and local government. And, you know, a lot of the big defense contractors, big companies move into the area, and that brought, you know, a very transient population. Uh, But what that brought was a lot of different types of people, different attitudes, different perspectives, different upbringings, different values. Uh, And I think one I think one of the challenges that we all face in this area is that it's a very wealthy area. Everybody who lives in northern Virginia will say you live in the northern Virginia bubble. And I know that's a fear for a lot of parents out there, that their kids grow up in an environment where they don't really understand the meaning of money or the value of things or the struggle that most people go through to have some of those things. Uh, or how the rest of the world works. You know, I tell the story a lot. My son, you know, is a baseball player, and you know, in his little league games, he stands at at the plate with a piece of equipment in his hand that costs more than what most people on the planet make in a year, and and he has three or four of those in any given year. And I'll tell you a, a really short story that I think impacted me as a parent, and it was one of those kind of quintessential moments in in an adult life where you see something click right? And in particular, in your children's view of the world, we were going to go do some volunteer work at a, at a place called the All Dulles Area Muslim Center in, in Herndon. It's called the Adams Center. And they were having a coat drive for the Syrian refugees. And we're getting ready to go. And my kids are sort of complaining. They're, they didn't, you know, they don't want to go. They want to sit there and watch cartoons. I mean, they're like eight or nine years old, right? Or play Fortnite or watch YouTube. They're doing something else. Couldn't be bothered. And and I sort of, I didn't lose it, but I sort of like, I got a little frustrated. I said, I, I need you to sit down. And they saw the look in my eyes and I Googled Syrian refugee children. And I took the phone. I said, and I swiped pictures for four or five minutes. I said, these are the people we're going to help. And I, mean, I showed them the horror. And it was clear that they had no idea that that even existed. That's not something they see in their neighborhood. You know, when they go to the the bus stop, they don't have to worry about stepping over a piece of burning trash. It, it just, they don't see it. And when I say it was a somber car ride, I mean, they're staring out the window. I mean, it was like their world was just blown up. But when we got there, they were ready to help. I mean, mission accomplished, right? And I don't, and, and not all of my life is, is that intense. But with things like growing up this area, there is a perspective that is lost, I think. Um, and going back to why I wrote the book, I think that, you know, there is a 
chaotic, anxiety-ridden experience in this area because, I mean, it's such a grind. It's so competitive. It is, it's so focused on winning and material wealth. And I don't mean to go off on a tangent about that, but like, it is true that the subtleties of life where the real meaning and happiness and joy can be found. You know, you talked about being a Jesus person where the Holy Spirit resides, the still small voice. Again, we lose the ability to tap into that if we don't make a conscious choice in in the moment. And that's what I think, you know, it's a challenge. I mean, we live in an area with wonderful opportunity and that should never be taken away, but it comes at a cost. Yeah, I could probably talk for hours on that on those points, but it's a great question. Well, I love that. I don't want to take up more of your time. Memoirs of an Ordinary Guy. If you like these stories, you get a lot more of them. So again, he is not he is not giving you all of his best material. I hate it when you watch a preview for a movie, you know, and they give you all your best stuff. So there's a lot more, even better stuff in the book. So check it out. Danny Ohms, thank you so much for being on the program and appreciate your time today. Lindy, thank you very much. Enjoyed it. This is Katie Keller, editor at clearancejobs.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of Clearcast. For more information on career and recruiting advice, visit boost.clearancejobs.com.